When a fast food worker is fired from an Arby's restaurant, he discovers the perfect revenge. And then we travel to Mexico to take a look at a minute-by-minute account of what happens after a UFO crashes. While the Mexican government and the CIA are both rushing to the scene of this fallen alien ship, little do they know they're both about to become participants in a mass casualty event. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host Jason Carpenter, I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. Hope you guys had a fun weekend. We got a lot of stuff to cover, so we're going to go ahead and get started right away. Walking into Dead Rabbit Command is one of our newest Patreon supporters. Everyone on your feet and give it up for Hammer. Woo, yeah, come on in, Hammer. Come on in, Hammer. Thank you so much for joining the Patreon. Hammer, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, I totally understand. Just help spread the word about the show. That really, really, really helps out a lot. Now, Hammer, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Dead Rabbit Dirigible. We're going to leave behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are going to fly all the way out to Missouri. And I hope you guys brought a lunch, but I hope you guys have not eaten it yet, because this story is disgusting, not just because we're going to an Arby's, the worst of all fast food restaurants. I would rather live in a Long John Silver's than eat at an Arby's. Long John Silver's isn't that bad, but imagine you're trying to sleep. (laughs) People don't live in Long John Silver's, but, you know, they ring that bell whenever the service is good. Have you guys ever been to Long John Silver's? It's a fast food. We did an episode on it before because there's a conspiracy theory that Long John Silver's is connected to the marijuana allegedly is connected to the marijuana industry. There was this drug dealer who was trying to launder a bunch of drug money, and he knew the guy who started Long John Silver, so he said, I'll give you this money. You can somehow convince people to eat fast food that is fish, and I'm going to launder this money. I'll see if I I'll see if I actually did that or if I just had a dream. It is a real conspiracy theory. I'm pretty sure I did that episode. Long John Silver's, though, why are we talking about Long John Silver's? Okay, let's get to the Arby's thing. I'm not living in Long John Silver's. I don't need to go into their bell ringing technique. It's if the service is good during the bell. Anyways, has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Apparently, I'm just very hungry. In Missouri, in the city of Lee's Summit, they actually we actually have the exact address for this place. So if you want to go to this Arby's and take photographs and send them back to me, if you want to relive this event... You can. I don't recommend it. On Highway 291 and Northeast Tudor Road, this story begins. This fable of a young man begins in June of 2019. There's a Arby's worker named Tanner Maggard. And Tanner, he's 19 years old, and he's like, ah, my first job. And he like walks into the Arby's, and he's making roast beef sandwiches, and he's like, preparing french fries or whatever other food they have onion rings i don't remember because i i haven't eaten there in like 20 years he's making all this food and he's like you know what i really love working here i don't just love the disgusting food i like the disgusting atmosphere he looks over at all the customers they're all like sloth people he's like yeah this is the place i've always wanted to be i've always wanted to work at an arby's this poor guy trust me trust me you're not gonna feel sorry for this guy in a little bit the fact that he's working at arby's is really the high point of his life Tanner is working at Arby's, 
But he doesn't work there very long. Because management has an issue with Tanner. Sure, he might show up on time. Sure, he might prepare the food correctly. Sure, he might have service with a smile. He also has a he also has a bad habit of setting fires in the kitchen. Not where it's supposed to be. He's not like lighting pilot lights or cooking food. Apparently, I don't know if he did this on his breaks. <laughs> They're like, if you're going to do this, at least wait till your lunch hour, Tanner. Or if he was doing it on the clock, but he kept setting fire to the kitchen. And for whatever reason, <laughs> here's a question. How many fires would one of your employees have to start at your place of business before you fired him? I think the answer would be one. He set several fires during his time at Arby's. He kept setting stuff on fire. And after, I don't know, the eighth one, they're like, we've talked about this seven times before. You can't set stuff on fire in the store. You're fired. (laughs) They didn't even mean the pun. They didn't mean the pun. He's like, oh, no. So he's fired and he leaves. But then on October 19th, 2019, it's been four months since he's been unjustly fired for trying to burn down an Arby's. He comes back into the Arby's. Now, I'm sure he stopped by several times between June and October. They didn't seem super alarmed when we walked back in, but they knew he was a weirdo. They knew this guy was a weirdo. <laughs> One, he worked at Arby's, right? And they all know there's something wrong with you if you work there. But two, he was sent up on fire. But, you know, sometimes you got to eat where you got to eat. So he, he comes into the Arby's on October 19th, and he places an order, and then he goes to the bathroom. Which is usually the opposite order, right? Normally you eat Arby's and then have explosive diarrhea. But he, before he even gets the food, he places the order, he goes into the bathroom. And then a short time later, he comes out and he tells the manager, Oh, I see you remodeled the bathroom. Huh. And then he gets his food and he sits down. The manager's like, oh man, this guy's so weird. We didn't remodel the bathroom. Why would he say something like that? I'm too busy. Shortly after this, after this exchange... Tanner goes back into the bathroom, and the manager has to go into the bathroom to clean it. It's time for their monthly cleaning at the Arby's restaurant. He goes into the bathroom, and he's cleaning up the bathroom, but Tanner is in a stall. And when the manager's in there, and he's like, dum 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 he's like picking up toilet paper or like wiping down the urinal, whatever. He hears Tanner in the, he hears Tanner in the bathroom stall going, Ugh. Hear some gagging and retching. And it's just like, oh, man, this place is hard enough to work. It's hard enough to work here. And now I got this dude, this ex-employee, gagging in this stall. So the manager is just trying to, I feel so bad for this manager. He's just trying to do his job, man. He's just trying to clean this up. So he leaves. Obviously, he needs to clean the whole bathroom. Tanner's in part of it. He's in the stall. You don't necessarily want to ask here. Are you okay in there, buddy? The manager leaves the bathroom and then waits for Tanner to leave so he can finish cleaning up. Tanner ends up leaving the bathroom and the manager's like, oh, finally. And he goes in and he opens the stall where Tanner had been previously. And what he finds is, you know, so in a lot of restrooms, they have the baby changing stations. I actually think it might be required by law. I'm not for sure. But they have those plastic things that come down so you can put... Because there's nothing you want to put your baby on than a piece of plastic that who knows if it'll hold the weight of your baby in an Arby's bathroom. You have the baby changing station. On the baby changing station in the stall is a headless cat. 
And that would be troubling enough, right? If you walked into a bathroom and there was a cat with no head. Not only did the cat have no head... <laughs> I'll pause to give you guys time to skip ahead. Not only did the cat have no head, it was disemboweled. It was completely mutilated. And all over the walls of the bathroom stall and all over the toilet and all over the door was cat blood and cat intestines. And, you know, it didn't have a head. The head was there, apparently. They didn't say where it was. I don't know if it was, like, propped up somewhere, if it was just rolling around on the ground. The manager's all playing hacky sack with the cat head until the police show up. Because that's what he did, obviously. This guy called the cops. Disgusting. And when the manager came out of the bathroom, he saw Tanner sitting in his truck in the parking lot watching the manager. Like, he wanted to see what the manager's reaction was. And then once Tanner saw him playing Nagisek with the cat head, he's like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Tanner drove away right when he saw the manager, right when they locked eyes, he drove away. Now, obviously, you guys might not know this. You guys might have never hired anybody. But generally, when you get a job, you have to list your home address, your phone number, your social security number, all that stuff. So the manager just called the cops and said, hey, I'm a little alarmed here. Uh, a man just eviscerated a cat in our bathroom, <laughs> and he's a known pyromaniac. And the police said the cat didn't smell. I didn't know this was a thing. I thought, like, if you cut something open <laughs> to my remaining zero listeners for this segment, I thought if you cut something open, it would be stinky, right? But apparently not. Apparently, if you kill... <laughs> Okay, I should just stop now. But apparently if it's a fresh kill, it's less stinky. It's not super stinky. The The reason why this is important, because if he had found a dead cat that had been like roadkill for a while, they would have smelled it and they would have been like, oh, he just picked a cat up off the road. Like he found a previously dead cat and did this. What The police go, there's no rotten smell to this cat. That means he just killed it. He probably brought a live cat into the Arby's restaurant and killed it there. Tanner was charged with second-degree animal abuse, which really makes me think, what's first degree? Like, if killing a cat, if bringing a cat into an Arby's in and of itself is an animal abuse, killing a cat in a bathroom stall, if that's second degree, what's first degree? Like, what could you possibly do that's worse than this? Don't tell me. Don't send me images or anything or links. I'm just wondering. And he also got charged with property damage because he messed up their bathroom stall. They had to repaint it and everything. Now, you can go. Like I said, I gave you the address. You can go check this. I want some of my intrepid listeners to road trip out there and see if they can detect the blood. Bring some luminol. I find it so fascinating, though, that how does a person like this even have a job in the first place? Like, how does a person like this have the wherewithal to fill out forms and put down their social security number. Because obviously he's setting stuff on fire and he's killing cats. Like, this wasn't his first rodeo, right? It couldn't have been. I, I can't imagine someone sitting there one day and be like, oh man, I really hate that I got fired four months ago. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill a cat and da-da-da-da. He had to have been doing this before. Doesn't it seem like there would be a, a, a ramp up to this? Or am I wrong? Are people just that easy to just push? That easy to just kind of push to the edge? It's funny because just maybe 10 minutes before recording this segment, I was on the Patreon Discord. They get to listen to these episodes live. And me and a longtime listener of the show, Rudy Jazz, we were just talking about the story of Ian Watkins. 
Lead singer of the Lost Prophets. This is going to get real dark <laughs> real quick. I didn't plan on this. This literally happened 10 minutes ago, but me and Rudy Jazz were talking about Ian Watkins. He was the singer of the Lost Prophets. It was like this new metal band or emo metal band, whatever. They were, they were really big. They were really big. And apparently he started having sex with babies at some point during his career. And the question is, was he always attracted to babies? Or did he become attracted to babies while he was on tour with the Lost Prophets? The rest of the band had no idea this was going on. They had no idea at all. They were totally flabbergasted when the cops pulled out their lead singer and they're like, oh, what's he being charged for? Doing meth? Because he also did a bunch of meth. He was also a meth head. What's he being charged for, you pig? Why are you arresting the lead singer of our band? You, What is this, some sort of police state? And then the cops turn around and they're like, dude, this is, we don't even want to say what he's doing out loud. It's so disgusting. Just trust us. Here's the arrest warrant. And the rest of the band was like, oh my God, that guy's disgusting. Can we go to the, can we go to the police station and beat him up for you? Like, what happened? Was he always attracted to babies or did he become attracted to babies? Now, the meth didn't help. He might have been a totally normal person. Meth, meth is satanic. Like the stuff that you go through when you're on meth is just so insane. Who knows? So maybe Tanner Maggard was just a normal dude who one day started setting stuff on fire. <laughs> that doesn't track at all. Most normal people just don't start setting stuff on fire and killing cats. At what point did he become a psycho? That's so fascinating. Maybe it was something inside of him. Maybe maybe making one too many cheddar roast beef sandwiches drove him insane. Who knows? But I don't think this is the first cat he killed. There's no other information on him. I found this article, and then he was charged with second-degree animal abuse, second-degree property damage. I couldn't find the results of the trial. A lot of stuff that's happened, like if you were arrested in October of 2019... What was it? Five months later, the entire country shut down due to the pandemic. So that so he may he's probably still facing these charges. Maybe they've dropped him by now. Maybe he's still wandering the streets of Lee's Summit looking for cats. I should also say allegedly because he hasn't he hasn't been found guilty. He actually denied that he did all this stuff. And then I compared him to Ian Watkins, one of the grossest people. So Tanner, if you didn't do this, I apologize. But if he did do this, you're sick allegedly. Hammer, let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind this Arby's. We are headed all the way out to Mexico. The cats, the cats are running to the helicopter. They're like, save us, save us. We're catching all the kittens that we can as Tanner's chasing them down the street. Allegedly. We're flying out to Mexico. I found this story the other day. This is awesome. This story is really cool because we hear a lot of stories about UFO crashes. They're actually not super common, but obviously they're the big ones like Roswell. We hear these stories about UFO crashes. We hear these stories about retrievals, like they went and they got the UFO and then they put it on a flatbed truck. But I've never come across a story that is so detailed. Like this is almost a blow-by-blow account of what would happen if a UFO fell from the sky. I got most of my information from a website called Mexico Unexplained. It's what it sounds like. It's a paranormal UFO website that specializes in stuff that happens in Mexico. And there's a ton of it going on down there. And this article was written by Robert Bito. So I want to give him a shout out. Great, 
great story. He got it. So the setup for the story was there was a UFO investigator. I believe she's still alive. There's a UFO investigator named Elaine Douglas. And she got a anonymous letter. Well, there's initials to it. J.S. Claiming to be part of something called Deneb Team, which is a retrieval unit. And so... That's the setup for the story. There's been like a, a a very famous book written about this incident, but it's flown under the radar, no pun intended, I think, for people in America. I had never heard this before. I don't know how famous it is overall, but it seems to be pretty rare. It's not like a well-known story. However, there is actually a cover story for this as well. Like it's popular enough that the government kind of had to issue a statement about it, but very, very fascinating. Let's get into this. It's August 25th, 1974, 10 p.m. And at a U.S. air defense base, all of a sudden, something pops up on their monitors. Sir, sir, come over here. Look at this monitor. Look at this. He's pointing at it. He's like, get your finger out of the way. I want to see what you're pointing at. An object is flying over the Gulf of Mexico. It's going to enter U.S. airspace in about an hour. It's moving at 2,500 miles per hour, and it's 75,000 feet up. Well, it's probably a meteor, right? It's probably something something that high up traveling that fast. It's probably something... It's a shooting star. Make a, make a wish, young man. Make a wish. Person who should be watching this machine, maybe it'll come true. But what happens is this object begins to slow down and then turn. It's still headed towards the U.S., but now it's coming at a different angle. And apparently multiple people were tracking this in the United States. And at first, they both thought it could be a meteor. But meteors tend not to, <laughs> meteors tend not to slow down and turn. It ends up dropping as low as 25,000 feet. We lost it, sir. It dropped off radar. And the commander goes, hmm, hmm. Very, very interesting. And he walks away. He's like, oh man, my wish isn't going to come true now. Single teardrop. About an hour later, about an hour later, radio chatter starts to pop up over the airwaves. A Cessna, a private plane leaving El Paso, Texas, headed towards Mexico City, crashed in the desert. Somewhere in the state of Chihuahua, near a town known as Koyami, the Cessna went down. That was the last place they picked it up. August 26th, it's early morning now, it's like between midnight and 1 a.m., Mexican authorities start to try to find this Cessna that crashed. Now, here's the thing, where it was at is where it should not have been. They have very strict air lanes in Mexico, and I'm sure they have them all over the world. And if you deviate from that, and this plane was like 40 miles off of one of these air traffic lanes, it seems like you're smuggling drugs. But even if it's not a drug smuggling plane, you want to see if there's any survivors. So the Mexican authorities send out rescue teams, air rescue teams, first to spot the wreckage, see if they can find this plane. The Mexican government has no idea that the U.S. government was tracking an incoming object flying incredibly fast through the night sky. They do not have access to that information. So they send up their air rescue teams and as these planes are flying around looking for this fallen Cessna, they do spot it. 
at 10.30 in the morning, it takes them a long time to catch this, but because it, it's in the middle of the desert, they see the smoldering wreckage of this small private plane, and they call it in. The rescue team says, hey, we found the plane. Send in ground units. Maybe there's still some people alive. But as this air recovery vehicle is still flying overhead, checking out the area, it spots something else. What they see is a silver disc that has crashed into the ground. And from what they can tell, it doesn't seem to be damaged. I mean, they are kind of up in the air, but it's not in pieces, not like the Cessna was. They see this disc, it was about 16 feet in diameter, all in one piece, that it clearly crashed into the Mexican soil. So they call that in too. They say, hey, we don't know what this is, but it looks like something else crashed out here. Maybe it collided into the Cessna. Now, like every good conspiracy theorist know, the CIA has big ears. They're constantly listening in, and they hear this. At Fort Bliss, near El Paso, Texas, the word comes in that while the Mexican authorities were looking for a plane that crashed, most likely a drug-running plane, right? The CIA is like, oh no, our drugs! I mean, they're drugs! We had nothing to do with it. As the CIA are now wondering about how they're going to get more cocaine into the United States, they hear this call come over. They hear this call come over saying, hey, we saw this disc in the desert. We don't know what it is, but when the rescue teams come out, to check on the Cessna, maybe we should send some people to the disc as well. And the government of Mexico agreed to that. They said, yeah, we'll send out military. Because obviously this story is taking place in 1974. People knew what a UFO was. So they sent a military detachment to look at this disc. But even if it's not a UFO, it could be some sort of government spy craft, right? So they do send the military out there. They send rescue crews to the Cessna. The CIA is intercepting all these transmissions. They know for sure that the previous night something was coming in through the night sky, over the Gulf of Mexico, traveling extremely fast at an extremely high altitude. Mexican government still has no access to that information, so they go, that's obviously a UFO. First off, we know it's not ours. We didn't have any spy planes there. It's possible that it is like a Russian spy plane, and if that's the case, we should go check it out, but it could also be a UFO. So they have all the information they need to go, except... They don't have permission. The CIA, apparently, at Fort Bliss, was getting everything ready to go. And the author, Robert Biddo, says it seems like the CIA had done this so many times that they knew exactly how many men they needed. They had all their equipment. They had four helicopters, including a heavy-lift Super Stallion copter that's used for retrieval. That's a real helicopter. It's not always picking up UFOs. Sometimes it's just moving more mundane things. The CIA gets their recovery team together and they're loading up their helicopters, but they technically need permission. So the U.S. government starts to coordinate with the Mexican government and saying, hey, we heard about that Cessna that crashed. We're so sorry. If you do happen to find any drugs on that, that wasn't ours. That wasn't the CIA moving drugs into the United States. Would you like any help with the recovery effort? And the Mexican authorities were like, no, we're good. We're good if there's possibly a UFO out there, right? Or at the very least, some unknown spy craft. So they say, no, we don't need your help. It's just a Cessna. We can do it ourselves. And the U.S. government's like, yeah, but the Cessna might have stuff on it that you really aren't prepared for, right? And the Mexican government's like, we can take care of the Cessna because really they just both want the UFO. 
Mexican government says, you can't come over here. We got it taken care of. Now, the CIA is known for a lot of things, but most known for sticking their nose in business that they, they, they don't belong in. They're being told, stay away. So the CIA goes, you know what? We're just going to go over there anyways. Like, we were just being nice, asking for permission. They take those helicopters and they leave behind Fort Bliss. They cross the U.S.-Mexican border. They are headed out to the desert. As they're flying out there, they're getting this info. They put a spy plane, because this isn't just the CIA at this point. Apparently, according to the story from JS, president's involved in this. U.S. military's involved in this. They have a spy plane, and they're monitoring everything that's happening in the area of this disc crash. Because the CIA knows exactly where it's at, because they overheard all of the coordinates, locations, stuff like that. And this spy plane says, okay, we've seen there's a bunch of military trucks have pulled up outside of this disc. They're actually loading it onto a flatbed. So they have the Mexican authorities now have possession of this disc. They've loaded it onto a flatbed, and it's driving through the back roads. They're not taking it in through the middle of Mexico City. They're not having a parade or anything like that. They're taking it along the back roads, way on the outskirts. And the CIA, as these helicopters are flying overhead, they keep intercepting this chatter. They're getting radio communiques from the convoy, from the Mexican truck convoy to the Mexican government, saying, yeah, we have it. We're headed down these roads. Da -da 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 -da. The spy plane's overhead. And then... The helicopters get word that the convoy has stopped. It's stopped in the middle of the desert on this dusty back road. The convoy is no longer moving. And all the radio chatter has stopped as well. So these four helicopters are flying over the desert and they have no idea what happened. But they're about to find out. When the helicopters get there, sure enough, the convoy is completely stopped. And they notice the helicopters land, and they, again, were very prepared. This is why people think that they may have done this a few times before. When they get out of their helicopters, they're wearing biohazard suits. And they start walking up to the convoy, and every single person in that convoy is dead. Now, it doesn't say how many people there were in total. It does state, the article did state that some of them were dead in their cars, which would imply that some of them were not in their vehicles when they died. But what the CIA are now standing among is a mass casualty event. All of these soldiers are dead, and that UFO was still lashed down to the back of this flatbed truck. So the CIA just take the UFO they <laughs> Or any aid. They don't have time to investigate any of this stuff. They're not supposed to be here. They were explicitly told to stay away. We don't need your help. They bring in that super stallion and they actually take the UFO off of the flatbed. And then all four of these helicopters fly back over the U.S.-Mexican border. And they take it to this remote location. And at this point, the CIA attach it to another flatbed truck. And then no one knows where it ended. That's pretty much the end of JS's story. He says, it either went back to Fort Bliss. It was taken to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, which is considered to be the true home of a lot of reverse-engineered UFO craft. Area 51, this is the conspiracy theory, Area 51 is the decoy. 
So it's it's an interesting thing. So this story, this according to this story, it either ended up at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, Fort Bliss, or the Center for Disease Control. Because here's the story: we don't know if this story is true, right? And we'll get to what we do know is true. We don't know what killed all of these soldiers. One of the ideas is it was radiation leaking from the ship that killed them all. It's possible, right? You can die pretty quickly if there's enough energy being released. I don't know if they'd be able to even load it onto the flatbed. They're like, oh, why do I feel so weak? Why do my bones feel like they're made of paper as they're loading it up? Some people believe that an alien could have gotten loose or the occupants of the ship, maybe not just one, could have gotten loose and torn them to pieces. Kind of the thing that's accepted the most from the story that it might be some sort of disease leaking from it. Some sort of because we know that we do that when we come to other places, other countries, even or other planets are trying to prevent us from bringing diseases. That maybe these people got some sort of fast-acting disease that wiped them out. Which in that case, you would want to take it to the CDC where they could properly contain it. You wouldn't want to take it back to Fort Bliss. That's where all these CIA agents are. And you're like, oh, let's just put it in this. Let's just put it in this warehouse, and then we'll go eat a hoagie outside, and then they're all dying. You would want to take it to somewhere where they could contain this. And then the question goes, what happened to the convoy? So one theory is that the convoy was cleaned up. Basically, the Mexican authorities came out there. They saw everyone was dead. That their UFO was missing. And they either just covered the whole thing up, disposed of the bodies, or they actually destroyed the convoy. They blew up the entire area because they didn't know what had caused it in the first place. At this point, they would have figured, they would have been like, oh, the UFO must have floated away. At this point, they would have picked up that four helicopters went through their airspace. All their stuff on radar would have picked all this stuff up. They would have realized the CIA was part of it. But they have to take care of these bodies. And since they don't know what killed them, and the CIA wouldn't be giving them that information... They destroyed everything that was out there. Completely obliterated it from the face of the earth. They just don't know. What we do know is in 1974, on that date, August 25th, 1974, a Cessna did crash in Mexico in that area. That's 100% true. There's debate about whether or not it was a drug plane or just a plane that was 40 miles off course. It was joyriding through Mexico. It's interesting because that's a fact. That's a fact. And you can look it up. Like when I was doing research on this on Wikipedia, they're like, yeah, a lot of people say that a UFO crashed in 1974, but it was really just this drug plane that went down. So, you know, it was just that. We don't know. It was pretty brief. It was on the Wikipedia page. It was like UFO. What was it? It was in the Wikipedia page, UFO sightings in Mexico. And it was a fairly incomplete listing. We've covered more on this show than are in that Wikipedia entry. But they said, yeah, a lot of people think a UFO crashed, but it was really just a Cessna. That's a weird debunking, because no one's denying that a Cessna went down. They're just saying that it crashed into this UFO. Something was going on, and these two vehicles collided. But then Robert Biddle was actually looking deeper into this, and he goes, what's weird is that it's agreed upon by the skeptics and the UFO community, that a Cessna crashed in the desert. He goes, that's that's not what's to debate. However, he goes, I cannot find any name of someone who was piloting that plane. He goes, listen, when planes go down, he goes, yeah, it was back in the 1970s and stuff like that. But they would have the records when that plane left. That plane had to issue a flight plan. 
as we know, was going from El Paso to Mexico City. He goes, there is no record of that plane ever issuing a flight plan. There's no name of that pilot. So he goes, it's weird because even the skeptics agree that a Cessna crashed in the desert, but I can't find anyone who ever flew this plane. I can't get any actual concrete evidence that a plane did crash in the desert. It's very, very weird. It almost seemed like the, the better thing for skeptics to do is just say the whole thing's made up. It's all made up. It never happened. But the skeptics say, yeah, a plane crashed, but it was, wasn't a UFO. And the UFO community goes, well, the plane crashed and it was a UFO. And Robert Bitto goes, what plane? Like, I can't find any proof that this plane existed. Now, even if it was a drug runner plane, you do have to issue a flight plan to point A and then just fly to point B. Fascinating story. Fascinating story. It is most likely that the Cessna did crash out in the desert. What caused it to crash? Who knows? It would seem weird that a plane crashing, which is it's not super common, but it's also not terribly rare, would spark such a UFO flap. But the reason why I really love the story is we get that moment-by-moment interaction between these governments over what would happen if a UFO actually crashed. If it crashed within your borders, you could completely cover it up, especially if it was in the middle of nowhere. But when you have to cross international lines to get this disc, because what is the disc? Again, 1974, UFOs were considered a joke among the populace, but the U.S. government made a concentrated effort to make people who reported UFOs a joke. Like That's what they did. They got their fingers in the media, which the government's always controlled the media, and they said, just call them little green men and make these people look like kooks. But this is the type of stuff that would go on behind the scenes, people fighting for these artifacts. And then where did it end up? Did it release some sort of biological weapon? And it's in the CDC and they're trying to figure it out, trying to create a cure for it or trying to weaponize it. Was it reverse engineered? Did they, did they take it apart and it, it was some sort of Russian spycraft? Who knows? And that's kind of the whole thing. Who knows? We will never know. Whether or not we have disclosure tomorrow and alien life is revealed, I still don't think we'll know about all these little operations over the years. I don't think they'll be like, oh, yeah, and then we invaded Mexico to take this disc, and this is what they found. I think when, if disclosure ever does happen, it will be played forward. They'll never admit they lied to us all these years. They'll never admit to that. It's a fascinating story because it shows really what lengths the U.S. government will go to control access to this information, right? Access to this technology. They invaded this country. I mean, it was just four helicopters, but I mean, let's call it what it is. They invaded this country to steal this disc. What would have happened if the Mexican soldier... Actually, I just thought about this. Who's to say they didn't kill all the Mexican soldiers, right? And they just go, oh, when we got there, their bodies were already riddled with bullets. I mean, riddled with disease. And then we blew up the convoy to keep the disease from getting out. I didn't, I didn't think about that being a suggestion because what would happen if the CIA, if those helicopters came out and the troops were still alive moving this convoy through? They would have taken it. They 100% would have taken that disc. And it goes to show the lengths that the U.S. government, I really figure any superpower would go to, to contain this technology. Like if you knew that a vehicle of extraterrestrial origin crashed in another country, 
you would send people in to retrieve it. And if those few people couldn't get it, you may actually invade that country in full, whip up some bizarre reason to go into that country to restore democracy and get what you need. And while you're there, you know, you can install a dictator and see how that works out. It generally doesn't work out well, but at what point would you say, no, we'll let them have it? You could not let an other country on Earth have access to this type of technology. That is how it would work out. You can have all this talk about disclosure and Congress hearings and people giving these highfalutin speeches about how we need to know the truth, but the truth comes with bullets and blood. The truth comes from agencies like the Central Intelligence Agency taking these things from people. We may believe that in the end, having access to this high technology will bring humanity closer together, will unite us as one people as we explore the stars. We may believe in this Star Trek future of exploring the cosmos as one people, but the journey to get there is covered in gore. It's crafted by countries invading each other to steal this technology. By taking possible survivors from these crafts and interrogating them the only way we know how. We may all want a future where we journey together as one species and explore the universe. But that journey starts with dozens of dead bodies in a Mexican desert. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.